If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Ruben Victoriano. He was a fun kid. And he grew up to be a fun adult. Even gave himself a fancy new name, Ruvik. Real bundle of jokes and ha-has, life of the party. Did the typical things that fun people like to do. Picnics at the beach, frolics through public parks. He donated his time to children's hospitals, used his exceedingly kind mind to better the lives of those around him. He made his community better. He was beloved in his family. He treated women with respect. He loved animals and he loved flying kites. He was a faithful, God-fearing young man, a real pillar of the community, a personality worth emulating, a life to strive for. Was that believable? Yeah, I, I didn't think so. Take all that, make it the exact opposite, and you get Rubik. Born as Ruben Victoriano, Ruvik was troubled from the start. He was exceptionally intelligent, highly motivated by curiosity, artistic in his approach to anatomy and psychology, but cruel and conceited in regards to his own works. The young Ruvik had little inclination towards empathy or compassion, a very dangerous, very manipulative personality type. He was the son of Ernesto and Beatriz Victoriano, their second child. The Victoriano family was extremely wealthy, and Ruvik did not get on well with his father. The two were cordial, but strained towards one another. His mother loved him, though, referring to him as her darling boy, but it's very unlikely that that sentiment was returned. Ernesto and Beatriz were donors to both their church, the controversial Cedar Hill Church, and a hospital called Beacon Mental Hospital. His eldest sister was Laura Victoriano, and though this young Ruvik was devoid of emotion or affection for his parents, he was rather quite fond of Laura, perhaps quite innocently in his younger years. You see, Laura understood him, she accepted him, conversed with and spent time with the young Ruvik, his only friend, his only companion, the only one who really made him smile. But when not out and about with his sister, the young Rivik spent his time within his own private hidden studies. With ample time and surrounded by wealth, there was little that the boy would be left wanting for. He experimented on and dissected animals, specifically pigs, testing and expanding upon the depths of his ingenuity, telling the carcasses, there's no cure for what I'm going to do to you. He developed a fondness for mechanical traps, things so complex and lethal that no single person could bring them into fruition, yet he dreamed all sorts of devious machinations in the solidarity of his studies. One day, a representative from the Beacon Mental Hospital in Crimson City came to visit Ernesto Victoriano at the estate, a Dr. Marcelo Jimenez. Jimenez encountered the young Rubik and the two shared in conversation, two minds of science two twisted peas in a pod. Ruvik divulged to Dr. Jimenez that he had something that he called his inner sanctum, a place of research and experimentation for only himself. Eventually, Dr. Jimenez found this place where Ruvik was studying, and at first, Ruvik was quite opposed to the doctor's presence, telling him that he would find his work disgusting. But Dr. Jimenez assured the blossoming psychopath that he too did distasteful things in the name of science and progress, better not to concern himself over the trepidations of the common man. And thus, a beautiful friendship was founded, and one that would carry on for many, many years. 
Not long after this chance meeting, when he was just 10 years old, a young Ruvik was out with his sister, Laura, just playing around in a barn on one of their parents' properties. You see, the Victoriana family had been buying up huge parcels of land around the countryside, and some of the locals were none too happy over it. A disgruntled collection of these locals surrounded this particular barn. The intention was to burn it, send a message, vandalize the land. And one of them thought that maybe he heard something. Maybe he heard something in the barn where Laura and the young Ruvik were playing, though this was unheeded, and the barn was set aflame with the two children inside. Laura managed to get her little brother above the flame to a window on the barn. The two of them were quite injured, burns and smoke inhalation. But Laura, with her last bit of strength before her consciousness fled, managed to push her brother out of the window, out of the burning barn. Ruvik survived, barely, covered in burns that disfigured the boy. Laura also survived, in a sense. Both of the children made it to the hospital alive, and their father, Ernesto, made choices that further victimized them. Ruvik was taken from the hospital. In secret, he was moved into the basement of his family's estate. His mother, Beatriz, believed that he was dead, and Laura was left at the hospital to die, also without her mother's knowledge, and this destroyed Beatriz. She stopped eating, she stopped functioning, called and wept for her children, and sometimes she could swear that she heard the cries of her sweet baby boy coming from the basement. Something within her told her that her boy Reuben, he was still alive. But Ernesto told her that it was all from her mind. Their children were dead, and she sounded insane in saying such things. Ernesto kept young Ruvik sequestered in the basement, where he was treated with skin grafts, pain management. But he'd lost his beloved sister. His father had imprisoned and betrayed him, and his mother, in his eyes, had abandoned him. Resentment festered in the young Ruvik, grew into rage and indignation at his lot. He felt that the world owed him something that had been taken away. He felt he'd been cheated, denied his fair share, and for some years the young Ruvik stayed imprisoned in that basement. His time was occupied with the tutelage of Dr. Marcelo Jimenez, who nurtured his curiosity and fostered an academic in the young Ruvik. Though, eventually, as he grew into a young man, Ruvik just couldn't contain his hatred and his fury anymore. He broke out from the confines of the basement. He found his parents, and he murdered them. Ruvik usurped the family fortune, and with the power of wealth in his hands now, Ruvik was unchecked and uncontainable, at least in the avenues that interested him. Dr. Marcelo Jimenez and the still-named Ruben Victoriano struck a deal of sorts. You see, Dr. Jimenez performed experiments of his own on patients at the Beacon Mental Hospital. His victims were people who were less likely to be missed, whose deaths or disappearances could be easily explained away. His own research would require funding and resources that he really couldn't get from the hospital budget, something that could also be subjected to an audit. So, Dr. Jimenez brought the young man that we know as Ruvik test subjects of his own from the hospital for his own research, and in return, Ruvik would continue the cash flow to the hospital that his parents had began. And the two minds really complemented each other quite well, at least academically. For years, this is how their arrangement carried on. Just a real match made in heaven. Until Dr. Jimenez got greedy. You see, Dr. Jimenez was convinced that he could 
and he should be the head of Beacon Hospital, and that he could achieve it only if he had greater standing in the medical community. So Dr. Jimenez began stealing Ruvik's research and publishing scrubbed versions of it. They were genius, revolutionary ideas and research in the world of medical academia. Except Ruvik caught wind of this, that his mentor was stealing his own work, taking credit for himself, diminishing the man in Ruvik's eyes. Another betrayal. Dr. Jimenez tried to reason that Ruvik himself could never publish his own works in any form because Ruvik lacked formal education. The scientific community would never take him serious. This did not smooth over the situation, however, of course not. Ruvik and Jimenez are both egomaniacs, extremely selfish. This soured the duo on each other, but they still continued to work together. And these publications, Ruvik's work, it eventually caught the eye of a clandestine organization called Mobius. And there's not really a whole lot that I can tell you about Mobius. They seem to be the very standard, let's take over the world kind of group. Secretive, wealthy, brutal, manipulative, very, very stereotyped in their villainy. Shots fired, certainly, I know. Come at me, bro. Dr. Marcelo Jimenez was recruited into Mobius, his research and experiments reported to and supervised by Mobius. Ruvik was also recruited into Mobius, given access to technologies and physical resources that he lacked on his own. Ruvik and Dr. Jimenez began working together starting development on something called STEM. And STEM was essentially a super virtual reality, influenced by and interactable with a person connected to it not intrinsically good or bad, but the product of the mind sustaining the simulation by something called the core. The core acts as a battery to the STEM program, and others can connect to this core through pods called the terminus. Early in development, the cover story, at least for the STEM program, was a new treatment for people suffering from mental illness, connecting into a pure, unbiased, innocent mind as the core where people suffering could be plugged in via the terminus to receive treatment specifically for their mind. It was quickly found that an unhinged, violent, ill, or troubled mind would spell absolute tragedy for anyone that connected to it. Compatibility was important, and the most compatible minds for others to connect to were underdeveloped minds not touched by the world. If done properly, STEM could help countless people in an infinite number of ways. However, we're dealing with Ruvik and Mobius here. Even if that's how Dr. Jimenez presented the justification for STEM in his stolen publications, that's not what the STEM actually was intended for. Mobius wanted STEM technology as a means for control over the general population, world domination and all that, very, very interesting. Ruvik, however, he wanted STEM for himself. You see, he felt cheated from a life that he deserved, a life with his sister. And even now, as an adult, he desperately missed her. He loved his sister. He really loved his sister. He yearned for Laura to be returned to him, if you know what I mean. Ruvik intended to find that world within STEM. In Crimson City, where Beacon Mental Hospital operated, disappearances in the hospital and around the city were being noticed unwitting and unwilling volunteers for the STEM research. The more stable minds of the common man were needed for the research now. They couldn't just keep using patients from the hospital. Everyone that they tested as a core was unable to sustain the reality of STEM, and those that connected to the program met with tragic, violent, inhuman deaths. 
As the years dragged on and his work drew closer to completion, Ruvik began to suspect that Mobius may betray him in the final inning of the game. And he wasn't unjustified in believing this. The villainous tend to recognize coming treachery. He began booby-trapping his estate, specifically routes leading to his studies and research areas. Only Dr. Jimenez knew how to navigate the corridors of the Victoriano estate safely and could approach Ruvik here. The immersive technology of STEM changed over time as well. Where once a person had to be connected to the program like a human USB port, Ruvik developed a wireless mechanism to cover large areas. Anyone caught in the transmission area would slowly be taken into a STEM simulation. Though to remain there, it was required that the target of the transmission eventually be plugged into a terminus. Ruvik also reprogrammed STEM to only accept himself as the core, making the technology unusable without him. But while Ruvik was expectant of a betrayal from Mobius and had taken steps to avoid it, he was not expecting betrayal from Dr. Marcelo Jimenez, his longtime mentor and cohort. Dr. Jimenez led Mobius agents into Ruvik's estate straight to Ruvik himself. Ruvik was taken to Beacon, where the functional STEM system was located. He refused to reprogram the core to accept other candidates besides himself, so Ruvik was dismantled. He was killed, stripped down to the brain. And it was integrated into the core, all that was left of Ruvik. The Victoriano estate was burned to the ground. Any evidence that Ruvik lived into adulthood was erased. What the lesser mind of Dr. Jimenez was not expecting was that Ruvik's consciousness was not gone. Ruvik was still in there, in his brain, in some sense of the word. And Ruvik, he began to awaken as the core, the power of his own creation, now an extension of himself. Good job, Marcelo. Well done. Before the tale of Ruvik may proceed, we have three friends to discuss. Companions in the tale to come. Let's begin... Hmm. Let's begin with Julie Kidman. Kidman, for short. Kidman hails from near the controversial Cedar Hill Church. Remember that one that Ruben Victoriano's family donated large sums of money to? While she wasn't outright physically abused by her parents, she and her siblings were extremely neglected. Her parents put all their money, all their emotional energy into the church which Kidman lovingly refers to as a cult. And to be fair, she's really not far off. See, the Cedar Hill Church was problematic at best. Located not too far from Crimson City, where Beacon Mental Hospital was located, the church was founded by Salvador Graciano. The small village around the church was populated mostly by very modest, unworldly people living hard lives. And the church was a bit of an enigma. It certainly had the surrounding village and its inhabitants under its thumb, though the actual practices of the church were secretive. If you believe what is later seen within the stem in regards to the church, then it was a place where sacrifices took place beneath the stone, where macabre science experiments happened and dark rituals were performed for unknown reasons, if you believe all that. Remember, it's Ruvik who was the core of this simulation. Probably not the most concrete information source, but sacrifices, experiments, and rituals were certainly more fun than embezzlement. Regardless, Kidman hated the church for what it took from her family and her parents for the neglect of their children. Kidman grew into a wild child, a rebel with an angry streak. 
when she was 14, she fled her home village and her family, leaving only a note behind. But no one cared. No one went looking for the 14-year-old girl. And out on her own, Kidman started getting into trouble with the law, getting a bit of a rap sheet. But she made it. All on her own, she found a way. Later in her teens, Kidman decided to go back to her home village to see what became of her family. But what she'd found is that in the years that she'd been gone, the townsfolk had all vanished. Perhaps they'd fled. Perhaps their deity suddenly came back. Perhaps the plague that had struck the area over a decade prior had come back and killed everyone. Perhaps a maniac in a mansion nearby had picked the town clean for science experiments of his own. Kidman didn't really care. Of her home, she said, they can rot for all I care. So, fast forward a few more years, Kidman is just out of her teens and about to start some prison time. She's really become a rough and tumble young woman and it's coming back to haunt her. But who would happen to approach the young gal but a Mobius representative? Kidman was a perfect candidate for serving Mobius as an agent. She had no hope. She'd already lost everything. She was getting ready to serve a long prison sentence. She'd never known worldly comforts. She'd never had attention nor purpose. And no one would miss her. Perfect. So, she was recruited into Mobius. She was trained as an agent for a few years, given her own fancy apartment in the city. And eventually, she was planted into the Crimson City Police Department, where she would be a rookie under the tutelage of Sebastian Castellanos and his partner, Joseph Oda. Speaking of which, let's talk about Joseph. And there's not a lot of backstory on our boy Joseph. He's from Toronto, he's married, with one daughter that he adores, and he's been the partner of Sebastian Castellanos for over eight years when we meet them. Joseph is quite docile and methodical, hard to rile up and easy to talk to. Though when rookie detective Julie Kidman comes under the direction of Joseph and Sebastian, Joseph was entirely not happy over it. He wasn't keen on his routine being interrupted with training a rookie. But eventually he got used to Kidman being around and took part in her training. And the rest of his story ties in closely to Sebastian Castellanos. So, let's talk about our final member of this trio. Before Joseph Oda was his partner, Sebastian was partnered with a woman named Myra Hansen. And the two worked well together. Eventually, the two detectives fell in love. Sebastian was assigned a new partner, Joseph Oda, and he became engaged to his now former partner, Myra. Sebastian and Joseph investigated murders. Myra investigated missing persons. Sebastian and Myra married a few months later and within a year had a daughter that they named Lily Lynn Castellanos. Joseph and Sebastian worked extremely well together, eventually even becoming friends. As reports of disappearances escalated in Crimson City, Myra eventually returned to the workforce, investigating the disappearances when little Lily was old enough for preschool. Myra fell deep into her work. She was damned good at what she did. But tragedy came to the family. When Lily was five years old, a fire broke out at the Castellanos home where Lily was in the care of a babysitter. The child and her sitter were proclaimed dead, and the marriage of Sebastian and Myra slowly began to crumble. Sebastian lost hope, took to drinking, closed himself off from his wife, became a liability at work. Myra refused to accept that her daughter was gone. She believed that the fire was set intentionally. The body wasn't their daughter. It was a conspiracy. Sebastian wasn't enough to rise to the challenge of that investigation. So 
Myra left him behind. She vanished. Sebastian reported her as a missing person, but suspicions fell back on him. Perhaps he had driven her away. What did he do? No one would blame Myra for leaving him. Sebastian eventually received a package from Myra, though, explaining that she was investigating Lily's disappearance, and that if she too had vanished, then she had gotten too close to a conspiracy and that it was up to him to find justice for them both. Sebastian continued to fall into heavy drinking in his family's absence. Eventually, Joseph reported him to internal affairs in an attempt to save his career. Though Sebastian resented this, Joseph was correct in his reasonings. The paper trail and the official confrontation saved Sebastian's job. Joseph did not turn Sebastian in for any reason other than to protect his co-worker and his friend, and the two remained a high-functioning team afterwards. Julie Kidman came under the tutelage of Sebastian and Joseph very shortly before Myra vanished, less than a month before. As troubles compounded over Sebastian, he began to suspect the rookie detective of being shady. He referred to her as a cold fish, a personality that was getting under his skin. It felt like she was always watching, like she was a scientist looking at a petri dish. Kidman, Sebastian, and Joseph have spent 23 months together working in training, when a most horrific turn of events takes place. Immediately following another case, our trio are sitting quietly in a police vehicle, driven by another officer named Oscar Connolly. A call for units to respond has been sent out. It seems that something has happened at Beacon Mental Hospital. Multiple homicides. Six units have already responded, but it's not enough. More units are needed. Those that arrived at Beacon before Connolly picked up the trio have suddenly stopped responding. And dispatch continues to reach out, trying to get anyone to respond. But it's complete silence on the other end. And when Sebastian calls back to dispatch to inquire as to the situation, this happens. Is there any... God damn it! Jesus! It, the chick didn't seem to be bothered. No, that chick wasn't bothered, was she past tiptoe? See, at Beacon Within Stem, where he's been trapped for about three years now, Ruvik is bringing hell. Dr. Jimenez activated the wireless function within STEM, not knowing that Rivik was lurking within the program and that he'd grown strong. However, Mobius was aware of Rivik's presence. Once that wireless function was turned on, Rivik took control of it. And that feedback on the radio was the team's admission into the early stages of STEM. It will take a short amount of time for it to be complete, but from here on, the team is walking deeper into the STEM program, where Ruvik resides. Ruvik's consciousness is wide awake, powerful and on a warpath within STEM. Kidman was ordered by her superiors to retrieve a valuable patient named Leslie at Beacon Hospital, and she was inoculated against Ruvik's aggressive invasion of the minds who enter the STEM. So no, she wasn't bothered by the feedback. Oscar waits at the car for communications, Kidman stays at the door of the hospital. Joseph and Sebastian proceed on. Within Beacon Hospital, something most heinous has happened. Bodies are littered about the lobby area. Patients, staff, security, 
all dead. And there's no sign of the police units that arrived before Sebastian, Joseph, and Kidman. It is so quiet. In a security room off the main lobby desk, there sits none other than Dr. Marcelo Jimenez in a state of complete shock, muttering about Ruvik. It can't be real. It's impossible. Sebastian steps away to view live footage of what's going on in the halls of Beacon. And he does see one of the units shooting at something down the hallway. Oh, hello, Ruvik. Remember, STEM is where he reigns. He is the core. He controls this world that Sebastian, Joseph, and Kidman are about to be submerged into. When Sebastian comes to, he is without his companions, suspended by his feet in a strange, violent, gore-smattered place. But he's not alone, oh no. With him is a rage-fueled, violent butcher of people called the Sadist. You see, everything here is a part of Rubik in some way. And there will be parts that blend into the world that comes from Sebastian, Joseph, and Kidman as well. But in this case, the ugly, bloodlust and anger of Rubik is personified in this very dangerous thing. Rubik has a fondness for traps. He imagined impossibly complex devices when he was alive. In this reality, those impossibilities are now quite possible. Sebastian is chased through and must contend with vicious, almost otherworldly traps and weapons while being pursued through this bastardization of the hospital's basement. Oh, what good fun to be had. Are we still wondering what happened to those other six police units? They're probably a part of the scenery at this point. Back topside are the bodies of the police unit that Ruvik took down, in the lobby where bodies remain untouched. Sebastian is walking reality for just a brief moment, and the KPD has not yet been able to fully respond to this yet. Outside, STEM resumes, and the city is beginning to crumble. Thankfully, good guy and our new best friend Oscar has confiscated an ambulance to make an escape in. Kidman, Dr. Jimenez, and a very small Leslie are in the back. It's the first time that we've seen Leslie. He seems quite distressed over something that no one else can hear. But why is this young man so important? Well, we'll talk about our pal Leslie here in a bit. There's more pressing issues. Namely, Joseph Oda did not make it out of the hospital. It's like he vanished. And as the ambulance drives madly through Crimson City, it starts to fold on itself. It's Ruvik trying to impede their movement. Ruvik wants something in that ambulance. I wonder what. And he wants to do things to the others inside of it. And the first victim up will be... Oh, Sebastian's new best friend, Oscar. Oh, gosh. He changes, his face blistering, cracking, blood seeping from orifices. This is the effect that Ruvik may have on those of weaker will within STEM. They become the haunted. Zombie-like beings that have just enough intelligence to be more akin to a feral hunter than a mindless corpse. Many people have been claimed by Rubik within STEM. Oscar is one of hundreds of these beasts within the program. From the back, Leslie calls that a fall is coming, but the warning is heeded far too late. The ambulance inexplicably plummets from a highway tunnel 
down into an isolated forest. Sebastian wanes in and out of consciousness, witnessing two unknown individuals roll him down a hallway, presumably on a gurney. Though this is a menacing event. Though when Sebastian awakens, he finds himself in a place that will act as a reprieve from Ruvik's horrors. A safe haven that seems part police station, part nursing station, attended by a woman named Tatiana Gutierrez. She's a bit cold, unemotional, sarcastic, but a neutral personality who will act as an ally to Sebastian, as well as to Kidman in her own journeys through STEM. Nurse Gutierrez was in life a nurse at Beacon, who witnessed many challenging things during her career that rather stripped her of strong emotion. She, like so many others, vanished during the STEM experiments. It seems that this is now where she resides, or what's left of her consciousness. In this safe haven, she provides a place for Sebastian to focus his skills, obtain items, glimpse pieces from Ruvik's past, and travel back into the dangers of STEM. When Kidman awoke from the crash, the sun was close to setting. She's alone, save the haunted, shambling remnants of Oscar Connolly, who attacks Kidman on sight. She must find Leslie. She has a mission for Mobius, a mission that Ruvik is also now aware of. Though he cannot directly overtake her as he did to Oscar due to her inoculation, he can still bring the many forces of STEM against her. But when Sebastian awakens, he's completely alone and it's dark outside. He's at a complete loss for what to do, so all he really can do is just keep moving forward. It might be an odd choice of words, but given the circumstances that Sebastian finds himself in, he, fortunately, doesn't really have anything that Ruvik can grab onto. Sebastian is too hardened, too much pain and trauma in his recent years, not a lot of hope to be manipulated. Sebastian can walk STEM for now without Ruvik turning him into a monstrous being, though with time, Ruvik will break him down. Sebastian has a very finite amount of time in STEM before he too is taken by Ruvik. Through this dark, broken hillside, Sebastian finds more like his former best friend, Oscar Connolly, haunted people, menacing monsters who will attack on sight. But off in the distance is a light, a beacon. It looks like the hospital, but it shouldn't be visible on a mountainside like that. The geography of this place, it makes no sense. It's a version of a memory stemming from Ruvik. Soon enough, Sebastian comes across the good doctor, Marcelo Jimenez, who is trying to locate his patient, Leslie. And now would be a very good time to talk about our sweet baby boy, Leslie, and why he is so important to everyone involved in this simulation. Leslie Withers, though he is small and seems childlike, is 25 years old, a patient at Beacon Mental Hospital. And when Leslie was little, he witnessed something cruelly horrific that changed him forever, the violent murder of his parents. He retreated into himself, struggled to communicate, a being controlled by fear and anxiety. Yet he dreamed that his family would one day return for him. Leslie didn't really develop as he aged. He remained childlike, broken from fear, dependent on others, skittish, and overly sensitive to the world around him. Leslie cannot function if there's not an authority figure to guide him. He will very willingly trust a person that he feels can protect him. However, if something frightens the young man, he'll bolt like a wild animal. Though Leslie would never harm anyone around him, he would flee before fighting. 
And people like Leslie are so easily victims of others. They need protection and guidance. Being placed into STEM is terrifying, yes. But for someone who cannot reason through their surroundings, who cannot defend themselves, who doesn't understand why they're being hurt, it's so much worse for them. So when Leslie cries out in fear or he flees, don't hold the grudge against him. He's a brave lad doing the best that he can. And though it might not be apparent on top of all this, he is also contending with the vile nature of Ruvik. You see, Ruvik wants out of STEM. He is a prisoner here. And Leslie is not only a good core candidate, someone who could support a STEM simulation, he's also a good Ruvik candidate. The two share the loss of a family, similar trauma types. Physiologically, they're quite similar. Leslie is also a chameleon of sorts. To relate to and to understand other people, Leslie simulates them. And he is easily dominated. If Leslie is brought to the center of STEM, to where Ruvik's brain is, Ruvik can upload into Leslie and easily take controls, so to speak. Then disconnect from the STEM, and through Leslie's body, Ruvik will once again be able to walk reality as a new man. Ruvik wants Leslie Withers. He calls to him, using terror tactics within Leslie's mind. Ruvik forces him closer to the core. So again, when Leslie calls out in fear and he bolts like a frightened animal, do not hold it against him. The young man is going through more than he can understand, let alone verbalize. Sebastian and Dr. Jimenez find Leslie hiding in the basement of a hospice compound that Dr. Jimenez's brother once ran, a bit of Leslie's memory presenting as part of STEM now. The young fellow is absolutely terrified of things lurking nearby, and Ruvik is playing games in his mind. He repeats over and over that he can't get away, he can't get away, losing our minds, losing our minds, losing our minds. Ruvik appears at a distance and interferes with the party. He removes Sebastian from Leslie and Dr. Jimenez, taking away their greatest source of protection, someone that Leslie would cling to, that could keep Leslie away from Ruvik. Now, personal attacks against Sebastian escalate from waves of haunted inhabitants of the program to an assault from a being that represents Laura Victoriano, Ruvik's dearly beloved sister. Very little will damage this thing called Laura, save fire. She screams like a woman in undefinable pain, stalks and runs up the hallway like a tarantula, and will beat anything that gets in her way to death, even if it's not Sebastian that she encounters. God, she is creepy. When Sebastian finally fights his way past her, of course, Ruvik shows up again to play his twisted games that he apparently so enjoys, chucking him into an abyss to land in a whole new play area. It's almost like being back in Beacon, save the vile, bloodthirsty beings that stalk the decrepit halls. But going deeper into the building, parts of Ruvik's past are displayed. His time as a child, making drawings on the wall, some depicting quite advanced displays of anatomy and science, others a little fantastical, though still harrowing. As he grew older, after the fire that took his sister, his drawings became more advanced more mechanical, more violent, eventually becoming charts and graphs that he reviewed during dissections of human victims. But oh, thank goodness. Nearby is our official best friend, Joseph, resting his sweet, dreary eyes in what looks like a bathtub, or rather, 
a terminus in the real world where individuals are connected into the STEM core, a hint of things to come, something that Sebastian would have no reason to recognize. It just looks like a bathtub. Joseph is almost immediately affected by the influence of Rubik, having a piercing headache, hearing something that Sebastian cannot. But the two can now travel together as partners, a dynamic that's extremely familiar to them. But Ruvik doesn't allow this for long. You see, that's a part of his game. Give them something, take it away, sprinkle in some violence and gore, then start anew. Similar to the radio feedback at the start of the game, a piercing sound stops Sebastian in his tracks, an attack from Ruvik, though he is not explicitly the target. It's Joseph. Joseph is an easier target for Ruvik. Joseph takes on the appearance of a haunted creature, bloodthirsty and violent, lunging on his longtime friend and partner. Thankfully, though, our boy is able to stave off being completely overtaken like Oscar Connolly was. But like Sebastian, Joseph's time is finite. He will eventually be taken by Rubik. The burden on Joseph is painfully clear. The process is exhausting.